excited to introduce you to Bridge of Hope Ministries. We'll talk about our other project uh, in, in coming weeks. But Bridge of Hope is really powerful ministry in one of the poorest, uh, roughest neighborhoods in North St. Louis, the Ville neighborhood, if you know your North St. Louis neighborhoods. And this is a place where a lot of joblessness, a lot of poverty, a lot of homelessness, and Bridge of Hope sits there as a place for job training, for help with clothing, career training. They've got a bicycle shop where they try to teach people how to have skills even in making bikes, education programs, addiction recovery programs, a church that meets there, shares the gospel and Bible studies, and our outreach team. Well, when we, early in the year, we sent, put a net pretty wide asking for proposals for our Take Back Black Friday projects, and Bridge of Hope presented theirs, and they said, we do all of these things for people, we help them try to find a job, and they may have a job interview, but if they don't have a place to live, where do they go to get cleaned up? And our plumbing is so abysmal in our place, and laundry facilities, and things like that, so we would love it if we could have decent plumbing. And so they put this project together, and some of our staff went and looked at their building, and Oh my, the, the condition of the plumbing that they have and their bathrooms and things like that is so poor. And with a gift like ours, we can come alongside them and help bring them some dignity and opportunity to grow. But what was, what was really cool, the last question on the form was, basically, we don't want to just give a check. How can we participate? How can we be involved? And they gave us dozens of ways that we as a church can be involved in groups individually and through our congregation and volunteering and coming alongside Bridge of Hope Ministries and helping them. So you'll be hearing more about that project and our other project as we go along, but we're excited to introduce you to them. And it's really important that we're involved in this kind of place. North St. Louis is not getting the best press these days, and we think, how are we going to have an influence of peace and the gospel and help to bring hope to people that are hopeless. And you take that and you multiply it around the world in places like Syria and other places where there's international conflict going on and and just in our homes as we're getting ready for Thanksgiving dinner and people are coming and we think, boy, I haven't talked to that family member in a while. I'm not looking forward to sitting at the table with them. And all of this stuff is just a lot of conflicts, a lot of brokenness, a lot of things that we need, the very message of what we're going to talk about today in in our sermon We tend to think of what's the big answer to this question? What's the big answer to the violence in North St. Louis? What's the big answer to Syria? What's the big answer to the poverty that exists around Bridge of Hope in the Ville neighborhood in North St. Louis? And I think it's it's not bad to think about the big answer, but almost always the answer is small. The answer is a person. An example of this last month, maybe you heard in uh, in Texas, the trial of Amber uh, Geyer, who was the police officer who thought she entered her apartment. It was another person's apartment. She shot and killed uh, both of them, John, and was convicted of murdering him. And in the, the sentencing, after the sentencing phase, when they were doing the victim impact statements, maybe you heard Botham John's brother, Brant John, who shared in his victim impact statement about what he wanted the judge to know as he was sentencing this woman who killed his brother. And What his words were were quite striking. I want the best for you, he said to her, because I know that's exactly what both of them would want for you. And the best would be to give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that both of them would want for you. And with the judge's permission, he embraced this woman before she was taken away in handcuffs to go to prison. And social media and the news uh, services just went 
bonkers trying to figure this out. What is this kind of thing? How, how do you do this? Where does this kind of thing come from? And I think the explanation of where it comes from is found in the verse we're going to look at today in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 9 is the Beatitude that we're looking at today. And this is how it reads. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. Now, this beatitude finds its fullest meaning in the big scope of history. We have to look at the grand narrative, and it starts, go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God. And that's where we have to start if we're going to talk about peacemaking. This cosmic story begins with God who in himself holds all power, all wisdom, all glory, all um, relationship in the Trinity, this intimacy that he had. And God wanted to create and have a relationship with a people. So he created this world, created all that exists in the universe, and created a people. And he wanted to have this relationship with them that would magnify his glory, not in a proud sense, but in a way of, of glorifying himself. And the dignity and the image of God stamped on people was reflected in that garden of Eden in the early chapters of Genesis, where Adam and Eve lived in harmony with God peace with God. There was a relationship there. There was a trust. There was an intimacy and a growth. That positive purity gave dignity and purpose and meaning. And then that was interrupted in chapter 3 when Adam decided to go his way rather than God's way. And all mankind was touched with that brokenness. And we've confirmed it in our own attitudes and in our own actions that we, we tend to go our way rather than God's way. And God... Uh, what happened in that chapter was so powerful that if we don't get this right, then we're going to build peace. We might, we might, actually, we might actually come to believe that if, if just Roe v. Wade is overturned, then it'll, it'll all be all right. Or if the war in Syria stops, then it'll all be all right. Or if everybody figures out this sexuality thing like we want to, then it'll all be all right. Or if my relatives will just stop doing that and do what I want them to do. But we have to go back here to the fall to understand the deep rootedness of the conflict in the world so that we can know the remedy, then we can work alongside of it. But in Genesis chapter 3, peace and harmony was replaced with shame and conflict across the board. Fear replaced security. Shame replaced acceptance. Pride replaced humility. Isolation replaced intimacy. Conflict replaced peace. That's what happened. That's why it's so monumental. Um, if you read through the Bible, the fall doesn't get a lot of words. It's just one little section. But the whole rest of the Bible then is what, what we need to do to deal with the impact and consequences of the fall. But God didn't stop. He didn't give up. He created or called a people to himself through Abraham. And the Old Testament story talks about God's relationship with them. It's important to note that Old Testament concept of shalom, peace, throughout the Old Testament, which is not stop fighting. The Old Testament is full of fighting. It's full of war. The peace is that inner tranquility and harmony that God's people have because they're in relationship with God in the midst of a lot of conflict, in the midst of turmoil, in the midst of brokenness. So the conflict continued and the animal sacrifice system was implemented to deal with this conflict temporarily until Christ came. We'll talk about this more in a few minutes. But Christ came and provided that sacrifice that no Old Testament animal sacrifice could give so that people could have a way to God. And then the Apostle Paul bridged Christ's ministry 
to the period that we're in. Let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what Paul said about this bridge to where we are today. All of this is a gift from God. All of this from the very beginning, this cosmic story is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave this wonderful message to us, the message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. That's the message. That's the calling. That's the work of a peace worker in the world. We know the story is going to end and God is going to rectify what's wrong and he's going to bring that ultimate peace and the things that are broken in life, the conflicts in life, the fights that we have are going to end. Um, You won't be able to fight with your family anymore once you get to heaven. You won't be able to do conflict because we only will only be able to get along with one another once we get to heaven. But here, we're struggling with this peace. We're striving with this peace. It's important to have that big picture in mind to know what we're doing as peacemakers. Because if we don't, if we don't understand that, we might just think we need to get people to stop fighting. But you can get people to stop fighting without creating, without bringing peace. People could just have a truce and they're not going to raise up their arms, but nothing has changed in their hearts. Nothing has changed in the way they relate to one another. Here, the Bible instructs us as recipients of God's peace to act as something like a diffuser. Maybe you have this in your home or office, a a diffuser where you have a little jar and you put some essential oils in there and you put some reeds in there and and then the reeds soak up the oil and fills the whole room with the aroma of uh, those oils. That's, I think, what a peacemaker is supposed to be because if you don't have any oil in the jar, there's nothing for the reeds to soak up and it's not going to last. We have um, a limitless supply of the peace of God in Christ that you and I are reeds stuck in that jar of the peace that God gives to us in Christ and we are to be giving that aroma everywhere we go, in our homes and in our workplaces, in our schools, all all in our neighborhoods to spread that uh, aroma of Christ. So let's take a closer look at Matthew 5, 9. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. The disciple, the follower of Jesus, is in a position of happiness and blessedness. Not because we're doing something, we're in a position of blessedness because of what God has done, which then allows us to do the work that he wants us to do. As we learned in other Beatitudes in this series, this isn't a conditional promise on our, based on our behavior. It's something that's true of the disciples of Jesus Christ and then leads us to an activity or an attitude which then actually enhances or appropriates the blessing that God gives to us. It says that those who work for peace are recognized and called children of God. We don't know from this verse whether that means God calls us his children or other people call us his children, or maybe both. Those who work for peace are known as children of God, maybe because as peace workers in the world, we actually reflect the image of God. We, we look like our Father when we're helping people to understand how to be reconciled and to deal with conflict. But peace in our day is much more than just not fighting. 
We have to understand what the Bible says about peace is almost always a deep internal reality, not an external focus. Now, there will be an external application. So, as Christians, when we sit down with people in conflict, as we approach conflict, be it a conflict in our community, going into North St. Louis and working with Bridge of Hope, with international conflicts around the world, there's a, there's a reason why Christ-centered peacemaking is important, but it has to flow out of the reality of who we are. This isn't a passive role. Jesus says that the, those who are blessed are peace workers. He doesn't say you're blessed if you're peaceful. And sometimes we mix that up and think, well, I'm just a peaceful, calm person, therefore I must have this. Well, that might be part of it because you have the peace that passes understanding that Paul talks about in Philippians 4. But this is an active kind of peacemaking, that we are working for peace. It starts in basic ways as we interact with other people. I'm going to read through a few verses and comment on some of them. There are many verses. We could spend the whole day talking about what the Bible says about peace. So I'm certain to miss one of them that you think should be in here, but here are a few. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. A gentle answer deflects anger, but harsh words make tempers flare. A gentle answer deflects anger, but harsh words make tempers flare. And based on what we've talked about of the internal change, that has to be more than just this is a strategy of negotiation that I'm using in this conversation. That, that's not it. It's why I can have a gentle answer when someone's accusing me of something. Why I can not respond defensively when I feel like I'm being cornered and misunderstood. It's because of what God has done for me in Christ. The messenger announcing God's peace is celebrated in Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 52, verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news, the good news of peace and salvation, the news that the God of Israel reigns. This message is, this verse is loaded with messianic uh, meaning. Right now I'm just thinking about the messenger, the one who takes peace, a message of peace and salvation to people who are in need. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10 refers back to this section and ties it into our ministry when he says in Romans 10, starting with verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but how can they call on him to save them unless they believe in him? How can they believe in him if they have never heard of him? And how can they hear of him if, unless someone tells them? How will anyone go and tell them without being sent? That is why the scriptures say, how beautiful on, are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. It's because we've been in the equation all along of how God is going to bring this peace that he is designed and implemented after the fall through the Old Testament sacrificial system and the, the sacrifice and redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. All along, you and I have been included in that program. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ today, you have been included in that program to be a diffuser of God's peace to help other people to know the hope that is in him Romans chapter 12, verse 18, do all that you can do to live in peace with everyone. Do all that you can do to live in peace with everyone. The way most of us read that, it should say, do all that you can do to get everyone to live at peace with you. That's sometimes how it is, isn't it? You know, if only they all would get their act together, if they would start thinking right and do like I need them to do. But that's not what it says. And this is, this is important for us in our day that we're doing everything we can do to live at peace with everyone. 
regardless of how they're going to vote next year, regardless of what goes on their Facebook page, regardless of how they view human sexuality, regardless of what they view, how they view any number of issues that we might think are really important to us. How are we going to live at peace in a world that actually lives like they don't know God because they don't know God? We need to live at peace with everyone. Hebrews chapter 12, and I love Hebrews, if you're going to really study peace, you have to go into Hebrews, because Hebrews links the peace that we have in Christ with the, the outworking of that in holy living, in, in a changed life, in, in a way that we should act. And so Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, work at living in peace with everyone and work at living a holy life. For those who are not holy will not see the Lord. So living at peace with people has a very, very close connection with living a holy life. And by holy life, that doesn't mean perfect. It means a life that reflects God who is holy. And to the best we can in our fallenness and with this old man who fights against me often in time inside, I'm seeking to be the man that God's called me to be. You're seeking to be the man or woman that God has called you to be. 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 11 Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. Search for peace and work to maintain it. And I like that concept because sometimes we think it should be easy. I mean, it's not. It's hard. Because I can get up in the morning and I can read my Bible and pray and get right with God. And at 7.30, I'm right with God. And as I get out the door and drive into work, I can blow it by 8.15 when, I, when I'm at work and things aren't going my way. And so the pieces with, of God is something we work at. We have to stay in tune with the provision of God's grace and mercy and following what His Holy Spirit is leading us to do. So we work to maintain that peace. It's an internal connection. This also highlights the timeless treasure of this experience in Christ. When Jesus met his followers after his resurrection, so he died, rose from the dead, in one of his post-resurrection appearances to his followers, among other things in John chapter 20, verses 19 to 26, he said, peace be with you. Peace be with you. And he was giving them much more than just a trite, cliche, kind, kind of saying there, peace be with you. He was communicating to them that this transition now, him having died and rose from the dead and now appearing to them and he would soon go to be with the Father in heaven, the Holy Spirit was going to come. Peace be with you was, it was real. It's like, I'm going to be with you. It's personal. Through the work of the Holy Spirit, I am with you. Peace is with you. It's a peace that we know because of what Jesus has done. It's worth taking a few minutes and reminding ourselves of the cost of peace. It's very costly to have peace with God, very costly. Psalm chapter 25, verse 7, the psalmist pleads with God not to remember him according to the sins of his youth. I mean, wouldn't we all join this prayer? God, don't remember me according to the sins of my youth. Don't remember me by the ways I've screwed up, by my rebellion, by all of the ways I fought against you and other people and hurt people. Instead, remember me according to your unfailing love. That's what it says. How does God's love remember us? God's love does not rename our sin. God's love does not just push reset and everything that we did before is gone, deleted, like on a hard drive, and we start again. God's love does not just pretend it didn't happen. God's love in Christ actually resolves it. Our conflict with God is not just 
renamed or deleted. It is actually fully resolved in the person and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the cost of this. We can make it kind of easy and think that it's just us and God sitting down and working this out. We get cozy with God in this. Isaiah chapter one, there's a verse that I, I enjoy it sometimes when people put this on the refrigerator magnet or on their Facebook post or something. It says, uh, Isaiah 118, come let us reason together. It's like God saying, hey, come on, let's sit down and talk. Let's talk this through, all right? Friends, if you read Isaiah chapter one, you do not want to sit down with that God. He is not very happy in that chapter. There's judgment coming in that chapter. There's real, real harsh consequences for walking away from him. And he's like, come on, let's sit down and talk. I don't want to be in that chair. Not with that God. But it's because of his love and it's because it's pricey and costly for God to purchase our redemption. Jesus' incarnation was not God sending his agent to broker a deal with God for us. It was God coming to earth, taking upon himself our fallen nature, taking upon himself our messes. That's why it's a hard come and sit down and let's talk. It's because our peace was at the price of God dying and owning and, and absorbing our sin, our consequences, our eternal damnation. All of that comes in him and he's like, I'm going to own that for you. That's where the love comes from. Thomas Torrance, uh, in addition to doing pastor work, I'm a mediator. I work with the Association of Missouri Mediators on the board. So I, I like to do mediation work and help people resolve problems. If you've ever been in a mediation work or you are a mediator, you know, the way we think of it, uh, a mediator sits down with two or more people who are in conflict and tries to help them resolve their dispute. Cool thing about being a mediator is I really don't have to have any expertise in your conflict. I don't even have to know much about it because a good mediator really just helps to facilitate the conversation between two people who work out their differences and walk away. Um, this is very different. When we talk about the mediation that Jesus did for us, we talk about Jesus as the mediator for us and our conflict with God. It's very, very different because he didn't come to just broker a deal with God on our behalf. In fact, he, he didn't come to say, you know, you and, you and God sit down together and talk this through because you and I don't even have a place at the table with God. Let's be real. I mean, we don't have, God does not owe us even to sit down at the table to talk about this. So the, the mediation that Jesus Christ does, does for us is something much deeper. I'm going to introduce you to a book that I read and studied when I was on sabbatical earlier this year. It's a book called The Mediation of Christ by Thomas Torrance. It was written in 1983, The Mediation of Christ. It's a powerful book. It's not that big. But he unpacks this concept. I'm going to read some of, a couple of sections from his book, and then I'll comment on them as we go. Torrance writes, Reconciliation must be understood, therefore, as the movement of God's love toward man, which draws him within the embrace of that eternal communion of love, which is God himself. God coming toward us and drawing us into that eternal communion with God. He goes on to say, in light of this, we must think of Jesus Christ as the mediator of divine revelation and reconciliation in virtue of what he is in his own personal identity and reality. 
He does not mediate a revelation or reconciliation that is other than what he is, as though he were only the agent or instrument of that mediation to mankind. And this is so important. He embodies what he mediates himself, in himself. For what he mediates and what he is are one and the same thing. So Jesus comes to that mediation with us and God and doesn't say, let's all sit down and talk. Jesus comes and says, okay, totally guilty on your part. Let me not mediate and barter an agreement. Let me be the agreement for you. Let me be the agreement that lets you have peace with God who otherwise you would never be able to have peace with because you don't even deserve a place at the table. That's what the love of God is in Christ. He points out that we're missing the meaning of the atonement if we think of it as being something external to who Jesus is. Jesus is our human response to God. Jesus is our human response to God. The only human response we can have to God and the only source of peace. Torrance goes on to say, God loves you so utterly and completely that he has given himself for you in Christ Jesus as his beloved son. He has thereby pledged his very being as God for your salvation. He has pledged his very being as God for your salvation. In Jesus Christ, God has actualized his unconditional love for you and your human nature in such a way once and for all that he cannot go back upon it without undoing the incarnation and the cross and thereby denying himself. There's nothing in the universe more powerful, more meticulously planned and carried out and applied than the love of God for you to bring you into a peace with God. Nothing, nothing's been more planned, nothing's more precise than the love of God for me and for you, though we don't deserve it. Paul models the only appropriate response for us in this. And it's in Galatians 2.20. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's our response. And we're gonna get in a little bit to how we do this. And if we don't start here, we're going to miss the real point of it. The reason I can help others with peace, the reason I can be at peace with others is because I've experienced and live in this reality of God's love for me in Christ. We're going to do something very different this morning, so hang with me on this. Um, we have communion the first Sunday of each month, and my sermon's not done yet, but we're going to stop and have communion, and then I'm going to finish my sermon. So, and here's why. There is no better way for us to reflect on and to commemorate and memorialize the love of God in Christ for us than by taking communion. So those of you who are servers, if you could go ahead and come to your tables, and our, our worship team is going to come out. Here's what we're going to do. After I pray, you're going to be invited, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, to come to one of the tables and to take communion this morning, whenever you're ready. I want you, as you're coming, to be reflecting on the cost of the peace that God has paid for you in Christ. By the way, if you need gluten-free bread, um, we have two tables that are gluten-free. If you're looking at me, think center right. If you walk to the back, think center left. And these are the two tables that have gluten-free bread. Uh, whenever you're ready, please come. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ today, if you don't know this peace that we've been talking about, and like, now nah, there's still a little bit of conflict going on there between me and God. I ask you to just stay in your seats and 
think about this, maybe even more than that. If you want to tap someone on the shoulder next to you, if they get up and come up here, they got it. Talk to them when they come back and say, can we talk? And go find some place and talk about what's important about how we find this peace with God in Christ right now. Let me pray. And then you're invited to come and take the Lord's Supper. God, you have actually provided not just a path, but a person who is our peace. So as we approach these tables this morning, let us do it with a sense of humility and gratitude and love and thankfulness for what you've done in Christ for us. Thank you for the peace that we have in you because of what this table represents in the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior Jesus. Amen. God, thank you for giving us that hope, hope for peace, hope that we can not, uh, not argue, battle, fight with you. Hope that we cannot wish that we could have a place at the table to somehow convince you to give us your favor. But through Christ, you voluntarily and willingly offered yourself so that we could know peace. Thank you, God. Amen. So I want to take a few minutes now and just to talk about, so what? So what do we do with that? Because this Beatitude says that you're blessed if you're a peace worker. So we need to be doing something to work out this peace. But I'm so convinced, and you've got it by now, that if we don't get this other part right, then we're not doing it well, and we're not doing it deeply enough. So let me remind you of the verses that Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and then I'm just going to give you some principles that we're going to work from. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting with verse 18. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation so that we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God has made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Perhaps the highest calling we have is to be a messenger and ambassador of this peace. At home, at work, at school, in your neighborhoods, here at our church, wherever you're at, whoever you're interacting with, where there's brokenness in North St. Louis or in other parts of the world, where if we don't go to them, they may very well not know this peace. Overcoming conflict is at the center of the gospel. So the next time you're in a fight with someone or an argument with someone or conflict or dealing with it, you might think, oh no, what, are, what a problem. Think about it as an opportunity. You're never closer to the gospel as when you are when you're in conflict. Been faced, our world uh, highlights this for us today. I don't think we've ever been faced with the opportunity to disagree and fight and separate and divide as much as we are today in our culture. The 24-hour news cycle brings international crises into our homes every day, 24-7, all the brokenness, all the mess, any scandal, any political news, any world conflict news comes right to us. Social media gives everyone a platform for expressing their opinions, and boy, do we express our opinions. We, we just shoot out things in social media kind of anonymously, and we don't have dialogues. We just say, this is what we think. Worldviews that were once hidden are now front-page news. And we deal with them in some way. Political divisions are growing wider and wider. 
We're going to have an incredible opportunity this next year to see what it means to be a peacemaker in, in, a, in a political climate that is getting so incredibly destructive. Some might say all of this is a sign of society unraveling, and it very well might be. But I prefer to think of it as an opportunity, an opportunity for us to be peace workers, an opportunity for us to take this message and this experience we have of God's peace to broken marriages and to broken families and to broken communities and to broken world. So I'm going to share with you in closing several principles. I'm going to be brief, so don't worry. Uh, Several principles that we need to keep in mind as we move into conflict situations. And it all flows out of what we've already talked about. So here's some things about peace workers that we need to be reminded of. First of all, a peace worker acknowledges that he or she does not see the whole picture. A peace worker acknowledges that he or she does not see the whole picture. There are different perspectives on any issue. There's a sense of humility that comes with being a peace worker. And we need to get this. Sometimes we think, oh, we've been saved. We've got this right theology. Therefore, we're the ones in charge. But if we think back, remember back to when we talked a little bit ago, we didn't even deserve to be at the table. So as I'm taking this message of peace to the community, it ought to be with a sense of humility. And instead of me knowing everything there is to know about this problem, and you need, to, you need to think like I do, it ought to be with a sense of, who am I to help someone else know peace except for what Christ has done with me and in me? And so based on the information I have and based on the limited knowledge that I have, this is what I want to do and this is what I want to say. And I think we could go a long way in the way we dialogue with our culture if we stop pretending that we've got every answer and we know everything about every issue and we come with a little bit of humility and we realize that there are different perspectives on things and that we don't see the whole picture. Another thing that's true of peacemakers is that a peacemaker recognizes his or her biases. A peacemaker recognizes his or her biases. It's naive to think that I approach a conflict or I approach a situation from a completely objective platform. No, my experiences, my temperament, my brokenness, my passions, my interests, all lurk beneath the surface and influence how I see you, how I see the world, how I see the people who we're in conflict with. I don't think we'll ever eliminate bias altogether, but I think one of the one of the conversations that's going on currently in the social, in the political, or not in the, just in the political realm, but even in the, in the public realm, is, is understanding biases. And I think that's really healthy for us. For too long, we've not even wanted to admit we have them. And it doesn't mean that I'm all wrong, it just means I need to know them. I read an article not long ago, and the, something in the article rang true for me. I went through four years of Bible college and three years of seminary training to be a pastor. And both in Bible college and in seminary, there were tracks of theology. We study theology in seminary. And so you could take all these classes that were labeled theology. And then there were other classes that were labeled African theology, Latin American theology. Why wasn't this other one North American Western theology. No, we have theology, which is the right one, and then these others that are derivatives of it. Those are some of the ways that we just need to challenge how we think as Christians. We need to step back and look at what we're saying and look at how we're packaging this message. And our our society, I think, will be very, very eager to understand and hear that if we move in it that way. 
Another thing we do as peace workers is we don't assume motives. It seems almost like a reflex if someone's on a polar opposite position that we are on a really important issue, that we vilify them, that we assume and attribute evil motives to them because they don't agree with us and we believe that they're foolish or evil or acting in underhanded ways. And we need to, we need to really check ourselves on that and not assume and attribute motives to other people who think differently than us, even who oppose us. We want that from other people, don't we? We do. We don't like it as people who stand for, let's take a real hot button issue, stand for, for the sanctity of human life. You know, it really hurts and we get our, get our fists up when someone says, oh, you pro-life people, you just, you don't like women, you don't like, you don't have any compassion for women in troubled pregnancies, you know, you have more concern about saving a baby than you do about a woman who gets raped. No, no, that's not it at all. But yet we turn around and we look at all pro-life people or pro-choice people and what do we say about them? We can tend to attribute diabolical motives and paint with a really broad brush when instead what we need to be doing is getting into relationships with real people, talking to real people about what's going on in my life and what's going on in your life so that we can have dialogue and discussions about these things and not just assume motives of other people. By the way, when you do that, if you really get real with conversations about that, and someone asks what's really under that, and then we do share, well, it's because, of, it's because of what Christ has done in me. And if they share, it's because of some, something that's gone on in my life or in my past. Then we start talking at a relationship level, and we get beneath the issues, which is what a real peacemaker does. A real peacemaker gets beneath the issue or positions to the underlying interests so we understand what, why we're holding the views we hold so that we can help people to understand where the change takes place. Another principle for peace working in our church and in our world is a peace worker avoids binary thinking. When every problem is viewed through a black and white lens, or you've got a filter or a formula or a plan that you need to run everybody through, you're going to miss the opportunity to be a peace worker. That's what I love about the Bible from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. It's story after story of human interaction with God and other people who are God's people. And there's so many different approaches, so many different ways that God intervenes in the human story. So we need to be careful to avoid a this or that kind of way of God bringing people into his, his um, family. Another principle for peace workers is that we regularly practice apology and forgiveness. We regularly practice apology and forgiveness. Sometimes in church, and I, and I work with a lot of church organizations and Christian organizations, and sometimes the problem is we're too nice. Nice is sometimes the enemy of truth and love, by the way. Nice is the enemy of truth and love. And church people are often nice. And when we're nice, we don't bump into each other because we don't want to be unnice. And sometimes we just need to let the mess be made of bumping into each other or of conflict so that we can know the remedy. We spent the whole first part of this message talking about the remedy. I'm not worried about cleaning up messes. We've got a gospel to do that. It sometimes is more damaging when we don't allow the mess to be made because we've got apology and confession of sin and forgiveness to clean up the mess and to help us be a stronger people and stronger relationships with other people when we do that. Another principle is that a peace worker doesn't die on the hill of rightness. Let me explain that a little bit more. 
A peace worker doesn't die on the hill of rightness. This is hard for us because we, we often have so many hills that we're going to die on. This is right. And if I, if I somehow don't make this point and get you to believe what I believe on this, then it's all going to go away. And there really are very few hills that we ought to die on on rightness. This gets back to the um, Undivided series that we did a year or so ago. Very few hills that we're really called to die on. Most of the time, as peace workers, we need to value the relationship rather than dying on the hill of rightness. Because a lot of us will die on the hill of rightness over and over and over again, and we will end up being the rightest person around and have nobody with us. Because people don't get along with people that are always right and have to be right. Doesn't mean we don't have the discussion of what's best, the best choice. In fact, if I were to give you a little tip how I package it and encourage people to package it, instead of I'm right about this, why don't I practice saying, based on the limited information I have of this experience, looking through the lens that I have, which is certainly colored by a lot of things, this is what I think is the best option. That's probably more accurate than I'm right, isn't it? I mean, most of the time, because there's usually always something that I don't know about this circumstance or situation. Another thing that peacemakers do, peace workers do, is they continually apply the message of the gospel to their own lives. You continually apply the message of the gospel to your life. The gospel is not something you encounter when you get saved and then it goes in a closet somewhere. And then you just start doing the Christian life. That's legalism or that's licentiousness or moralism. Uh, We need to every day, moment by moment, be living into the gospel that we celebrated when we had communion today. That helps me have my heart right with anybody who's in a conflict with me. Because if someone's in a conflict with me and they're accusing me of stuff, I can just say, you don't know the half of what Jesus died for for me. You don't even know the half of it. Um, Let's talk. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. Two final challenges, and then I have a little story, and I'm going to let you go. One challenge, have you experienced the peace that we've been talking about today? Have you experienced the peace in your life that only Jesus Christ can give? And I'm not talking about whether you're a Christian or not. I'm going deeper than that whether you've prayed a prayer or you've, you've made a decision. I'm talking about today, are you at peace with God because of what Christ has done in your life? And if not, I want you to, to deal with that today by praying with someone after the service, maybe a friend or someone you came with or come here to the front and we'll be glad to pray with you about that situation. Then the next challenge is, are you an ambassador of peace? Are you building relationships and influencing those who are far from God so that they might experience peace? And are you living with a heart posture toward conflict and toward people who are opposed to God or toward people who are opposed to the church? Are you living with a posture towards them that's one that flows out of your transformation in Christ and offers that to them? Let me tell you a story of something that happened just earlier this year in Conway, Arkansas. There's a 23-year-old man who was high on drugs, he was at the end of his rope, really messed up. He, he broke into the um, Central Baptist Church in Conway, Arkansas uh, on this 
addicted ran, uh, rampage, tore up the church, destroyed sound system and equipment and vandalized it. Over $100,000 worth of damage was done that night when this guy broke into this church and tore it up. A young man was arrested. He was charged with a crime. And while he was waiting uh, for trial and sentencing, the, police, or the pastor of this church contacted the prosecutor and said, we don't want the book thrown at this guy. We don't want the book thrown at him. How can our church help him? How can we, how can we get him some help? So this church paid for him, worked it all out with the court system, paid for him to go to a Christian uh, rehabilitation institute where it was a six-month inpatient program to begin with and then outpatient after that. While he was in that program for six months, he trusted Christ as his Savior and God transformed his life. And he got some skills and relationships. And about a little over six months after he did this, um, he was baptized in the very church building that six months earlier he had sought to destroy. And when, when he was asked about this, he said at his baptism, I'm starting to understand how God works. I didn't pick the church that night. God picked me. I didn't pick the church that night. God picked me. Let's pause that for a minute. If you would have gotten a call last night or this morning and said, hey, at church tomorrow, you need to be aware that someone broke in and just vandalized and destroyed our whole building. So when you come tomorrow, it's going to be a mess. This is convicting for me because I don't know if I would. Would your first response be, wow, God picked that guy to vandalize our church. He picked him to vandalize our church so that he can somehow encounter the peace of God. God blesses those who work for peace. It's a heart posture and an activity that's carried out for us. Let's pray. Father, you have provided us peace in Christ. You've given us the ultimate gift in your sacrifice for us and we thank you for that and then you've invited us to be peace workers in a world that so desperately needs peace all around us politics and social circles and human sexuality in our marriages and in our inner cities in the homes in the suburbs where everything looks nice on the outside but behind the doors it's a mess we need to be peace workers so fill us and use us to bring peace to this broken, needy world. We want you to get all the glory. Amen.